are here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 21 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you LedgerX kicks off its first long-term Bitcoin futures option, MovieCoin, a Hollywood producer wants to make movies funded by crypto, and we recorded some exclusive insights from the Consensus London launch party. On with the news. Colin, uh, how are you, sir? Colin G. Platt, welcome back to the news on Blockchain Insider. Doing fantastically. How are you doing? Eh, not too bad. A little hungover from the uh, Consensus London launch party last night, but uh, ain't, ain't no party like a Consensus launch party. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there were there was uh, many an uh, Ajit Tripathi type in the room and Alex Batlin. Good to catch up with uh, a lot of the London community there, actually. Non-Ethereum people and uh, and everybody from around. So it was a good night was had by all. And I heard there were some, some good ICOs that were um, looking prospectively for clients. I uh, didn't see that myself, quite fortunately, but apparently so. Um, but, you know, you weren't there. So who knows what could happen when, when you're not in the room policing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you got to watch out. Yeah, everybody's scared of the G. Right. Um, all right. Colin, first story we have today. Uh, story on Coindesk. This is the one where the first long-term LedgerX Bitcoin option pegged their price at $10,000. All right. So walk me through this. A Bitcoin option and a pegged price. What, what did somebody actually buy here? All right. So, so there's um, some, some basic things in here that we'll kind of break down because it's, it's not entirely accurate, but it is really cool. The fact that um, LedgerX has launched Bitcoin futures options. So um, we reported a few months back that um, LedgerX had been um, approved by the CFTC, the, the regulator for commodities futures trading in the U.S., um, to operate uh, Bitcoin futures and now options. So um, the ability to buy or sell something dependent on a fixed price in the future. Um, so what I can do essentially is I can say um, Bitcoin today is about $8,000. could vary when you listen to this. Um, at, at some point in the future, um, I am willing to sell you Bitcoin for $8,000. Now, why would I do this? Well, that, that would cost you money today. So essentially what this has done is it said in about a year time, um, you have the option to buy Bitcoin at $10,000 or uh, no matter what the price is, uh, if it's above it, or you just don't buy it at all. And that costs on the market about $2,250 to do, um, which is how they peg the price. So it's not really um, saying that Bitcoin will be at that price or any kind of bet on that. Um, it's just saying, given the volatility of Bitcoin, given all of these parameters, uh, the cost works out to be um, about $2,250 to buy Bitcoin for $10,000 in a year's time. And so this might be valuable in a year's time if the price of Bitcoin is actually higher than $10,000. They would have the option to buy it for $10,000. And for sake of argument, if it was $12,000, then they could sell that and instantly make themselves the the delta, the, the $2,000 less, less fees there. Is that why somebody might want to buy it? That's why somebody would buy it. So what they're really hoping is that big, the price of Bitcoin should be substantially above about $12,250 um, because of the premium they paid up front, the, the money they paid today to enter into this trade. Now, you would ask why somebody might do it on the other side. Well, maybe somebody owns a lot of Bitcoin um, and they don't think that Bitcoin's going to be above $10,000 next year or above $12,250. Um, so they make a little bit of a, a premium on top of that by collecting money from you today and hoping that they don't have to give you that Bitcoin for $10,000 in a year. Well, And this is something that is harder to do today with something in, in a regulated environment. So why is this significant? Is this the, the start of something more consistent? Or like, what? Why should I care that somebody can have this type of contract that, that, that 
potentially couldn't have before in, in Bitcoin. Yeah, so um, these products are really useful uh, for traditional managers of money of any sort. Uh, these exist uh, a lot in traditional um, markets. So a really simple one would be an equity index, so something like um, the FTSE 100. I might own a basket of stocks that looks a whole lot like the FTSE 100, and I might be worried that the price is going to go up or down, and I want to manage some of that risk. So I would trade options or maybe futures on top of that. So this is a really good way. If you're um, a sophisticated investor or if you uh, have a risk tolerance to either increase or decrease your risk under certain scenarios, um, this potentially uh, makes the investment into Bitcoin more palatable for traditional investors. So we could imagine if these things take off and the thing that we'll talk about later with the CME, um, if these things take off, it may bring a whole lot of traditional money into this very, very currently very volatile asset class. Uh, bringing a whole lot of traditional money into this asset class i think that's the the key sentence right there there's a there's a lot of money potentially been waiting on the sidelines uh, but they've been scared off by certain things um volatility being one uh, and the other one we hear a lot about is all the forks and the next story on coindesk which ha- the beginning of this headline no fork no fire i'm i'm thinking that's not how you make a fire but okay um but no fork no fire um segwit2x nodes stall running abandoned Bitcoin code. Uh, so Segwit2x, we've been talking about this saga for a few episodes now. We know that this was the fork in Bitcoin that didn't happen, but some people were going to still potentially run it. It looks like that's not happening, Colin? It, it definitely looks like it's not happening. So um, we talked about uh, Segwit2. Uh, this was a, a plan change in the network. Um, Segwit, segregated witness, was... Um, a uh, change in how the transactions inside of the Bitcoin network are actually described to make them smaller um, and take less room. Thus, you can cram more into one megabyte block. Um, previously, it was about seven per second, and now they're they're guessing it's uh, somewhere around two two times as much. Um, what this was is to then say that bucket, that block size, let's actually double that. Um, a lot of people protested against this and said that it was not a good idea and has lots of risks. Um, that we won't really get into. Um, but there was a contingent pushed by um, several prominent companies inside of the Bitcoin space to say, well, let's just upgrade this and point all of the exchange tickers at this. So everybody will have to follow this or be abandoned. Um, a couple of weeks ago, this was called off. Um, we reported on that in last week's episode, or two weeks ago in, in that episode. But um, the, the code that was put out there as potentially taking over the Segwit2x friendly code um, was was still kind of a ticking time bomb of sorts. And what happened is a lot of people, not a lot of people, a few people came out and said, we're going to try to run this anyways, um, even though everything had been called off because they either wanted to cause uh, an issue inside the Bitcoin network or they did permanently believe that this is the best way to go. And when it came time to activate and everything should have gone off and this would have either forked the network or would have followed the network depending on, on certain conditions um, or, or possibly take over the network, um, there was a bug in the code and one step before, one block before it was supposed to take off, um, it just canceled itself, installed everybody's computer running this particular bit of program. So the normal Bitcoin was unaffected. Um, they didn't even know this thing happened. Uh, but the people watching this and fighting against it were um, quite pleased to, to see that it didn't take off. And those I imagine backing it uh, didn't feel so great about themselves. Interesting that a crisis could have been averted here by uh, by the fact that people 
backed out and didn't go with the with the fork uh, it's uh interesting as well that the second layer scaling options like lightning network continue to be uh one of the things that people talk about as an alternative to scaling the underlying bitcoin network when we're talking about moving from seven transactions a second to 14 transactions per second maybe up as high as 28 transactions a second still a long way from where we need to be and if second layer scaling comes into this then maybe that's a good thing and whether or not it's fees versus speed and is it going to be cash or is it going to be digital gold that that argument's going to definitely keep marching on i think colin yeah and if i can just say one thing on that part of the second layer scaling so that's essentially um trying to group or batch transactions in some forms um, to move move that money back and forth between different parties and then only settle the, the results from time to time inside of the actual blockchain. And as you said, Lightning Network is, is one of the more talked about propositions to do that. Um, it's worth noting if you trade inside of a, a Bitcoin exchange or if you have the, the actual little metal tokens that um, some companies produce and you move that around, nothing actually hits the blockchain. So some form of second layer scaling um, exists in a, in a quasi uh, true state. Colin, this reminds me a lot of how Visa and MasterCard work today. They authorize transactions and then settle them days later. Uh, this is something that we see quite often uh, in in many different uh, financial services today where transactions are netted off and then settled later. Uh, it's interesting that the blockchain world that originally started out being about 100% bearer token settlement is now starting to replicate the old world of financial services. But maybe that's for its development and will be useful. Uh, but I think, Colin, moving us on, the story of the week uh, from uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange here, coming soon, Bitcoin futures. Is it coming to a th- is it coming to a theater near you, Colin G. Platt? Well, I really hope not because it'd probably be something like the Big Short. Um, <laughs> uh, so CME is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, as you said, um, which is the largest exchange um, of any sort ar- around the world. It's primarily a derivatives exchange, and it started um, in Chicago, interestingly enough, um, but owns um, the New York Mercantile Exchange, uh, several exchanges in Chicago, and some non-U.S. based exchanges as well. Um, they just, they announced a few weeks ago uh, that they would be launching Bitcoin futures or the ability to trade the price of Bitcoin at a fixed point in future. So if it goes up, um, one person makes money and somebody loses money and vice versa. It's uh, very similar if, if people are not familiar with futures to how um, spread betting or CFDs work. Uh, if you're more familiar with those, um, one person has to lose for the other one to win. What was really interesting to see is... Um, they're pushing ahead with this. Um, there has been um, pushback on this from, uh, amongst others, Interactive Brokers, uh, which is a, a very large retail and institutional trader and, and broker, somebody that actually goes to the exchange when you place an order on their website um, and makes that trade on your behalf, uh, as, as well as with um, many other clients at the same time. Back to this netting thing. Um, what was really interesting inside of this is um, when we're talking about forking, the way that CME has actually set this up, uh, provided the product takes off uh, when it goes live, um, we're told at some point in December of this year, um, they will have a lot of power concentrated in, in the hands of very few people around things like forks and particular risks on, on top of that. So this could be something um, very unintentionally that becomes um, a very critical factor in the future development of Bitcoin, not only because of the, the institutional money that comes in, um, but the ability of a very small group to effectively dictate what is and is not a Bitcoin, which has been an ongoing debate of people that are following forks, 
Um, our, our good friend Tim Swanson um, wrote a, a blog post on of numbers. The link is in here talking a bit more about that. Um, and I think one other thing I'll just add on top of this is um, people may not realize not only is, is the CME an exchange, uh, which comes into the name, but they're also a clearinghouse, which essentially manages risk between parties. And um, all of the big banks in the world are, are members of these things, certainly in the US, including in there is uh, JP Morgan. So um, our friend Jamie Dimon may have traders working on Bitcoin of some sort, um, unbeknownst to them, uh-huh. very, very quickly. So what I like uh, about that point you just made, Colin, is people have for a long time been concerned about how do I hold on to Bitcoin and manage the risk of holding on to Bitcoin because I have to hold on to the whole thing. Um, CME are talking about parking 30% as collateral. So essentially, I give you 30% of the cost of the Bitcoin future I'm buying and the CME holds that as collateral on our behalf just in case anything goes wrong or just to deal with the volatility in, in the market or the fact that things could go wrong in the market just because it's it's so early and so nascent, which you know is, is a very large amount of collateral compared to other assets, but it's also a lot better than 100%. So this is definitely a, a step in the right direction. Uh, and there was an op-ed I saw in Coindesk from a chap by the name of William Mallers Jr., who's been uh, working in sort of futures uh, since 1984 and he built uh, built a particular company into one of the largest uh, futures brokerages and sold it in, in, in 2000 he's uh, been in the bitcoin space for three or four years now and uh, he talks about the kind of responses institutional folks tend to give him and there's a there's a subtitle in here that says tulips in five four three somebody's going to mention that tulips reference but if you've been in this space for a little while it's actually quite different to that and that there's a lot more going on here that you should pay attention to um and he, he does point to uh, overwhelming consumer demand because we're in an era where um, fiat money in other words uh, pounds dollars uh, euros have been printed a lot in the last 10 years and gold has rocketed as a result so a, a asset that replicates gold but maybe easier to settle easier to trade like bitcoin could potentially be very very popular I- interesting concept check it out um this the uh, the title of that is fud from all sides fud from all sides on on coindesk colin next story in bloomberg hollywood hitmaker plans to fund their next blockbuster with crypto how about it go Oh, man, I think WTF is the best way to put this. Um, So essentially what is happening here is um, we have historically movie movie making has been a very concentrated funding pool uh, based out of Hollywood. This this gentleman, uh, Christopher Woodrow, would like to democratize that and put it out to everybody. So uh, when you want to democratize and, and finance or put in the same sentence, naturally your mind goes to, why don't we put that on a blockchain? Because, well, why the hell not? Um, so he's launching an ICO because, again, why the hell not? Um, to raise a bunch of money to fund a bunch of movies that he's putting together. I'm not really sure how we democratize anything other than giving him money, but why the hell not? And he's going to make five movies. Hopefully one of them will be about crypto. I don't know. Um, very interestingly and almost ironically, he did direct a, a movie previously called Tulip Bulbs. So hopefully that one was about Bitcoin. I haven't seen it. I think we need um, to hit the irony klaxon on that one. He's Yeah, Tulip Fever is a movie he's directed. And he's now, I mean, with this ICO token sales space, there's a lot of money on the table potentially and people are trying to grab it. And I actually think that's 
negative behavior. Don't just grab cash because you can think you can get it from investors, but do it because you have a real reason and something value to sell. I mean, that's the thing with blockchains is a lot of this uh, record is going to be there forever and it's going to be pretty hard to delete what you did. In five to 10 years time, regulators will still have an almost perfect audit, audit trail. But hey, um, you know, like Woodrow wants to democratize filmmaking. What do you want to democratize, Colin? I want to democratize shutting down bad ICOs. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, Zilla, today's uh, episode sponsor, wants to democratize ICOs in general. Um, Zilla, as you know, is a, an ICO marketplace app. They're kind of like a mix between Amazon and Reddit for ICOs. You can browse ICOs, upvote or downvote them. So I guess you'd be downvoting the uh, the movie blockbuster um, Tulip Fever this this time, Colin. I'm so going to Sybil attack this thing. <laughs> but if you like an ICO with Zilla, you'll be able to participate using various tokens or credit cards with one click. You can pre-register for the limited Zilla beta app at zla.io. Um, Colin, last story this week in Global Trade Review. Um, this is um, the R3 CEO, good friend of the show, David Rutter. Missing full production next year would be, quote, problematic. Why do you think that would be, Colin? Well, uh, first, a shout out not only to our good friend, David Rutter, but our good friend, Todd McDonald over at R3. Um, he keeps harassing us, so why not? <laughs> he's, he's been wanting that on Twitter for so long, hasn't he? So have, <laughs> friend of the show, in fact. We have to give it to him uh, because we do appreciate all his feedback. Thanks for listening. Um, so a lot of people have been talking about um, public blockchains and coins, and we talked about uh, the rest of the show about them. Um, a lot of people have also kind of forgotten about the the push and the need to make money inside of these things. And this is something um, that David Rutter and the guys over at R3 have been thinking about since they ended up with a lot of money in uh, earlier this year, uh, as, as well as in last year. Uh, they've been putting out Corda um, and a lot of people in banks who get very antsy and want to return on all of this money they put in there are starting to wonder when it's ever going to come to fruition. Uh, and David said kind of what everybody's been saying for the last 12 months, uh, if not longer, that we really need to start delivering on these things. He's quite confident that we're going to see things come out. Um, trade finance is something that they're they're talking about quite a lot and we covered in the show. Um, they did something with Calypso, uh, as well as some of the other things that are starting to come online. I think regardless of whether it's R3 or digital asset or IBM or a myriad of these other um, permissioned and private blockchain um, providers or platforms, uh, things really need to start coming online in 2018. So I think we're going to see a big push around this and kind of um, the last six months where they, they've they been quieter. I think it's because their heads are down. Um, and next year we start should hopefully start to see some of these things come out into the light. And I, I imagine that's going to be something that's going to be uh, front and center uh, midtime next year. If we cast our minds back, it was uh, sort of july august to september ish of, of 2015 when r3 first made their announcement uh, digital asset were making a splash uh, ibm were really starting to move into the space uh, in, in a big way and we've seen all of the uh, pocs one could ever wish to see and now it's time for this dlt space to put up or shut up and i think it's interesting to see people putting money where their mouth is and saying we have to do this now it's time to deliver it's time to execute and a steady march towards that Absolutely. And and um, that, that steady march is, is very quickly going upon the nerves of the people that are funding these things and need to show results. Because if, if we remember in big companies, um, you don't necessarily have all of the time in the world to get things done. That's very true. Uh, Colin, I'm going to pause there. I've got to tell you something. Um, 
<laughs> Laura was uh, saying on Slack that there was so much sass coming from Colin during the, the movie coin bit. Um, and then I called you G-Sass. Um, and then we realized that G-Sass was your stripper name. Jesus is my stripper name. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered on Twitter at B Chain Insider. That's the letter B Chain Insider to share your thoughts. What do you think about MovieCoin? What do you think about CME Futures? Uh, or get in touch with at Colin G Platt or at SY Taylor if you want to pick up on anything with us personally. Or drop us an email at podcast11fs.com. A quick reminder, uh, 11FS is the company that brings you this podcast and we're a challenger agent who help banks, asset managers, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how you can commercialize projects, uh, when they're going to be real, or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope you'll get in touch. Drop us a line at hello at 11fs.com. All right, next up, we have the blockchain roundtable from the Consensus London launch event, which is why I have a rather sore head today. Over to that event. All right, we are here at the Consensus Launch, and I have been joined by a wonderful, wonderful panel. Um, first up, I have Alex Batlin. Alex, tell everybody what you're doing these days. You've left the banking world. I have, yes. I, um, I have started my own uh, startup uh, called Trustology. It's a consensus spoke, so the good people at uh, Consensus are... Uh, currently believing in what I'm doing, uh, so very excited to be part of the family and also uh, very excited about trying my hand at being a, a startup. An entrepreneur, and of course we have the wonderful Charlene Chen from BitPacer. Charlene, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks Simon. Thank you for being with us. And Ed Budd, not Ed from Bud, but Ed Budd, formerly of Deutsche Bank, now of? Consensus as well. You joined. What made you leave the banking world, sir? Well, I, as you know, I retired anyway, but uh, they managed to convince me to uh, get off the farm and uh, come and have a look at some of the fiat world to connect to this uh, ever-growing ecosystem. You were living on a farm, living the dream, uh, and you came out of it. It must have been interesting. And we're joined by Lawrence Lundy from Outlier Ventures. Lawrence, how are you, sir? Very well. Thank you very much for inviting me on. You're very welcome. So I'm going to throw a big jar of candy in the middle of the table, metaphorically, and just ask somebody to tell me, where do we think we're at? And I'm going to ask Charlene to start out. You've obviously, with BitPacer, been in the remittances business and the Bitcoin space for a number of years. Talk me through the narrative of how you've seen this evolve. Because I think three, four years ago, it was it, Bitcoin was dead, wasn't it? It was surely going to be all over. And now it's just tulips. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can tell you that in the early days when I said Bitcoin, you know, people looked at me with a blank stare and especially, you know, in the African markets where we work. So back then in uh, 2014, we had launched in Kenya and we spent a lot of time educating people on what the heck Bitcoin is, how to use it, why it would be beneficial. And now it's been really amazing to see four years later, we have pivoted from uh, Bitcoin remittances to Bitcoin-powered um, B2B payments. Uh, but now all those friends that I gave a dollar's worth of Bitcoin to back then are asking me how, I, uh, <laughs> how to get in involved. So, Lawrence, you've also been involved in the space and had a number of roles for a couple of years. How Would you say a similar sort of thing? The interest has changed and it's moved from just, hey, it's a remittances thing into a broader topic? Yeah, for sure. I think that um, one of the first entry points into the space was doing a project for Intel, where I looked at sort of every um, use case that they could potentially play a role in. So actually, we didn't start by looking at, at Bitcoin. We actually looked much broader. And even back then, which was 
three and a half years ago, they even called it distributed ledger technology, which is a word more, more popular now. But um, I think what I've seen is over the last say six months, even despite the, the ICO craze, there does seem to be a professionalization. And I mean that by genuine corporates like CME and Fidelity, as well as you know, other big sort of corporates outside of the finance space that are really taking this seriously. And not in the sense of, we just want to do a proof of concept, but actually thinking a, a bit more deeply about what actually their use, user problems are and how to solve them, as opposed to just saying, hey, we want to deploy an Ethereum POC. You mentioned CME there. That's the Chicago Mercantile Exchange announced they're going to provide futures. Ed, you, you come from a background in financial services. How significant is that? And is that just, uh, is that the only thing happening or are there other things going on that you think are significant? It's definitely not the only thing happening. Um, it's a significant milestone, definitely. An instrument that people understand, a, a name that's you know, extremely large in the infrastructure of financial services today. So it's significant they're moving into that. And I think in terms of the way in which risk is managed, the way in which they understand that, that's, you know, it's a big step. It's definitely not the only piece. I think it's a good example of where the mainstream is being touched by this topic. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the lots of proof of concepts there. And, and I think there's the stage we're at is we see a lot of, a lot of people have been through that proof of concept craze. Uh, they've been feasting on it for some time. And, and a lot of people haven't really done the work on business model and on what re the real benefits ultimately are, as, as we've spoken about before. And the, the flashy lights of cost and speed are, are, you know, are not proving enough to push stuff into production, quite, quite rightly. This is a digital business model conversation. And so I think we're beginning to see those that get that commit to much larger you know, enterprise-ready workforces that can really bring that in. So it's not tech change, it's business model change. And that's hard for any incumbent. I mean, Alex, you and I are veterans of um, kind of the blockchain lab at banks moving into this space. How do you reflect on business model change? Do you think that is a core component here of, of, of what we're seeing? And, and what's, what have you learned in your journey from sort of lab at UBS, which was very famous, and then your time at Boney, and then now stepping, stepping away from that as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. So I think what we're seeing is that people recognize that blockchain is about networks and really a, a token and a network is, um, is a form of new type of ownership of the network. And we've seen quite a few, for instance, uh, consortia now being formed by the banks, for instance, and the insurance companies. Um, and I think right now they're forming consortia for the sake of collaboration. But at one point or another, they'll need to figure out how to monetize this consortia. And actually, as people get comfortable with the idea of a token being effectively a mechanism to uh, monetize this consortia, we will see a... Uh, gradual acceptance of this idea of a token as another form of ownership uh, of a distributed network. So I think people are getting there. It just takes time for people to get their head around it. Gradual acceptance of token as a form of ownership. Lawrence, you were sort of hinting there at this gradual acceptance of the, of the new business models and the professionalization. Can you give me some examples of, of that? I can, and I think it's quite instructive to look back um, at other uh, information and communication technologies that were network-based to then see, kind of place it in where we are in that industry. So we've done a project where we look back at the telegraph and how that developed, how the telephone developed, um, and how the radio developed, and kind of try to see how it started as very diversified, very decentralized, 
very much peer-to-peer at the time. And then over time became sort of more pragmatic as venture capitalists got involved and more business people. And it tended towards more sort of, you would say centralization, but you, you could argue just more efficient ways of reaching the customer. And so what I see is that exact same model playing out today. And without bringing ideology to it, I think the, what's happening with Coinbase is an example of a, a company that's um, very VC-backed, but equally deploying some really good, useful products. And now with their new custody, pro- uh, I guess, product as well, um, you're starting to see some really interesting professionalization tools. And I think that's where we know we, we might be at that point to cross the chasm, right? To go from early adopters to the mass market. By professionalization there, I assume you're referring to Coinbase announcing that they're providing custody services, which as a former Boney employee, Alex, you know a little bit about custody and the importance of that in financial markets. But I want to pick up on what Ed said about changing the business model. Are we not just going to evolve back into the old financial services business model? Or do you see that there is an opportunity for business model change here? And what might that be? Uh, there's, there's, there's definitely an opportunity for it. Uh, whether there's also an appetite for it is it varies massively um, depending on the, the the financial institution we're talking about. But I think you've got that. You, you need to go a little bit further than maybe people are comfortable with to try and evangelise a little bit about what is possible uh, in order to maybe get to a very practical, you know, gradual acceptance type step, but a step forward because uh, uh, you don't really get enough bang for the buck from a gradual acceptance step forward. In, in a large enterprise, but it's got to be on the on the journey to somewhere slightly bigger. So my co-founder at 11FS, Jason, often says, don't try and tell people what the future is, just show it to them. Um, so Charlene, are you showing people the future with BitPacer and, and what can a company do with BitPacer that they couldn't do before? And, and what have you learned in that process? Absolutely. It's been a wild journey uh, in Africa, really identifying solid use cases for Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is front and center, and where Bitcoin is actually in the back end and hidden from the customer. Um, So we've seen use cases where people actually want to get paid in Bitcoin, but there's nowhere to spend Bitcoin uh, in most African markets. So there needs to be a player like BitPesa to be an off-ramp converting the cryptocurrency into a local Uh, African currency. I think what we've been most excited about seeing is really the B2B payments and enabling, say, African businesses that otherwise couldn't make payments to suppliers as far as China and Dubai to do so. They don't know that Bitcoin's being used simply as a token of settlement and as a payment rails. And it enables a company like BitPesa to tap into liquidity all over the globe, whether or not we're incorporated and banked there. So there's something about access to new markets, which is kind of something that wasn't available before that I think BitPacer really speaks to. When you look at um, new revenue lines or new business models as well, are there new asset classes? Are there new... Uh, Alex, how, how do you feel about the idea that there are new products as well as, as new markets? Well, I'm banking on it because that's my startup. So, <laughs> uh, so my value proposition uh, or my hypothesis is that we're moving from a time when we have mass production of trust services. To, what do you mean by that? To mass customization uh, based on platforms. So today, for instance, if two parties need an intermediary because they don't trust each other, they have to go to a service provider. And if that service provider offers a foreign exchange service or any other sort of trust intermediation, great, you buy the service, done. If you want to tweak it, unless the intermediary is willing to change that for you, you've got nowhere to go. So I talk about it as mass production of trust. 
because all you have is this service, take it or leave it. Blockchain or some of the blockchain-based solutions like mine are banking on the fact that people would want to mass customize the trust agreements. So you now got the kind of the uh, micro trust use cases or the long tail of trust, all sorts of new business models. They're now afforded because you now have a platform to because trust. People have different appetites to risk, payment times, terms, all that sort of stuff. So take it, take it or leave it doesn't work for everybody. Actually, I want to shape this contract to what I need, whether that's I need to be able to get paid by suppliers in new markets as, as one example or, or anything else. I mean, just like, how do you calculate your net asset value if you're a fund administrator? Varies a lot. And right now, you get one, and that's it. Uh, you can create much more innovative new investment products if it's really trivial to calculate your NAV across a basket of asset classes, which includes fiat, non-fiat, traditional securities, and crypto assets. So, Ed, you've walked in the world of traditional financial services companies for a long time. You've dealt with uh, getting things done inside those, those organizations. Do you think there is a role for traditional financial services companies, or is this just all going to be invented without them? Uh, it's uh, the answer. I think is always there's somewhere in between, but depending on the time frame, to be uh, <laughs> fully evasive. No, um, no. One of the things I always said from the beginning was there are there are certain types of assets that that will be around for quite some time to come, and there is a regulated structure to that the the life cycle of that asset class, and many of those roles that are involved are going to be around as long as those as long as those assets are. What, what will fundamentally change, though, is the economics behind delivering those, those roles. And that's a, it's a business model question again. But it's, it's not about mass consolidation. It's about people performing a role that they get paid a certain margin for today. That role may become extremely easy or become very transparent to deliver. And so the economics behind it are going to change. And what people get paid for are going to change. So there's, there's a much bigger risk to... There's a risk premium that isn't paid today in certain processes where the risk management of the data of the people involved or the errors that may go wrong and the, the fines that accrue therein, that there's different ways in which some services, those roles are going to be priced than they are today. But And then, you know, to answer the question fully, there are other assets where those roles may fully go away. And, and I think in particular, the uptake of digital assets that are digital from their birth. Then, then you're going to see new forms, as Alex was talking about, with that style of custody. And I think that is a revenue and growth opportunity. Is something that financial services hasn't been talking about in capital markets for a number of years. It's how do I get through compliance? How do I deal with my cost? How do I manage collateral? I mean, these are the C-suite issues. It's not what new asset classes can I be selling to my customers? I mean, Lawrence, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I, I want to. The lens of sustaining and disruptive innovation is quite useful in this context because I think what we've seen in the last. I guess, at the beginning of, you know, we'll call it the Bitcoin um, era before it was blockchain, not Bitcoin, was probably that um, this was a disruptive force, right? Disruptive to the whole financial system. And I think what we've seen over the last, and when I say professionalization, over the last few years, it's been, well, how do we use this technology to have more efficient operations and how to actually improve our own efficiencies? And I think we're getting through that in manufacturing, but also in Internet of Things, uh, you know, Internet of Things markets. There's a lot of areas for which ledgers and blockchains actually improve operations. But to your point around, I, I guess, new financial assets is the more interesting areas are when we do things that we've never been able to do before. So it's not about actually improving processes, it's about new revenue streams, but it's also about whole new ways of doing doing things that we haven't been possible before, right? So I was in uh, South Korea last week and it was the first time uh, I'd 
been there and it was, I was blown away by one the amount of physical stores they have selling Bitcoin unbelievable it's an absolute massive market uh, and, and second it was the first time I'd really um, given the new story that I've been telling which is this story of kind of DLT on one side and quote unquote blockchain and crypto assets on the other side and like this convergence piece in the middle that comes over the next couple of years and I know Jeremy Miller from Consensus has been talking about that from some time. Alex, do you think there is a convergence that we're that we're heading towards? Do you think or do you think it's it's possible that you can have one or the other and one ultimately wins out? I think we'll see a range of offerings. So for instance, I'm betting on the fact that some people will want to have um, the benefits of contract as a service but operated by a central entity um, and for some use cases that's absolutely acceptable because uh, you want the performance the cost reduction and the privacy afforded by a central operator on the other hand certain use cases for instance land registry it's so valuable that you'd never want to have a central operator if you don't have to have that as a uh, kind of sole data custodian so I think we will see this idea of smart contracts, but operating across a range of private, consortia, and public blockchains, depending on the level of distrust. So it's really a spectrum, and actually, depending on who you are and what you want to achieve, there'll be different answers. Charlene, reflect on me where you think this goes a little bit, not just with your own business, but kind of the broader community. What are your thoughts on the current challenges and, and how we start to overcome those? Well, I find the space incredibly exciting, and, and I also want to make it clear that BitPesa, although we have Bit in our name, is actually digital currency agnostic. So, you know, for the services that we're offering that are related to crypto, we're seeing interest from our customers in more than Bitcoin. Uh, we've had people express interest in Ethereum, actually, um, as an asset class. For us, I think I'm really excited about the space expanding to really start at offering value-added services that really reduce inefficiencies in the market. So in addition to uh, kind of the financial use cases that we're seeing across the continent, I'm also really interested in the non-financial applications in developing markets, such as land registry, smart contracts, uh, medical insurance contracts stored on the blockchain. Um, Internet of Things for uh, supply chain tracking um, in markets where there's um, mostly just paperwork being pushed across borders. So, um, you know, as someone who works in developing markets, I'm really excited about seeing things that are more traceable and increasing the efficiency of cross-border payments. Lawrence, Charlene mentioned Internet of Things. I know uh, that's a subject near and dear to your heart. Uh, is there anything that you think is different about distributed ledger blockchains or token-based blockchains specifically for the Internet of Things? What does it give me that I didn't have before? Well, I think the Internet of Things is one of the most interesting of the emerging technologies for which distributed ledgers make sense. And I, I guess I'll be agnostic to the level of centralization required, but there is no infrastructure that will support billions of endpoints currently. So the simple fact of the matter is the existing technologies that we have are simply not secure enough or not scalable enough to be able to support that. So I think you have a, a question where you have to start with a blank blank sheet of paper. So you, you, don't have to re, you don't have to rip out any systems. You actually have to look at the machine-to-machine -machine transaction. And you have to say, what is the 
the, uh, the most effective way that we can not only just communicate but share value. I think that's the key point to your question. How do machines share value, not just communicate, but actually trade, trade resources? So it could be digital resources like bandwidth, or it could be digital resources like you know, power. We need to be able to have a way for machines to be able to do that in a large, scalable way. And I think to use the word scalable, we have to be careful because, of course, existing blockchains as they are are not necessarily scalable. But that is one of the reasons why we, we made a, an investment in IOTA, because IOTA is one of those companies that has looked at this problem and designed a solution for the problem right so i think we're likely to see that so it's an issue of internet of things needing a way to needing a way to be able to trade value i think that's the core that we don't have beautiful lawrence thank you um reflect on that for me ed in terms of where you see everything going yeah i think the the, the i like the question on convergence uh, and and the the piece that I see it going and is why is the answer to that yes is that you see a very multifaceted approach to that so by that I mean this isn't just about the technology maturing and the tools like you know the, the developer tools that the consensus puts out for you know the support for the network is growing but what's really interesting is seeing the legal government central bank so lots of other walks of of commerce that are that they're essential for the the fabric of the future to be constructed they're not just, you know, they were engaging a year ago, but they're now past engagement. They're now understanding what they're going to do for an approach, what they're going to do for policy. Look at Project Ubin and actually open sourcing, you know, the con consensus involved, one of three there. You, you end up with, you know, entities that people didn't think would be actively experimenting and talking about and open sourcing things that they were doing, really engaging hands-on. And so that, that you need all of those elements. It can't just be tech-led and it can't just be business model-led as well. And, and the final factor, which I think is the one most forgotten, is it's going to be customer-led. And, and lots of industry verticals are experiencing their own real disruption to business models, historical business models. And as, and as you rightly mentioned, you've, you've got things like IoT, they're, they're developing within products that never had those, and they're going to have to find something that just not just manages the data, but manages the transfer of value that nobody manages today. And I think that's, yes, it's a new business and new products, but it's also essential to their survival. So they're going to drive financial services to support them, and that's often missed. To actually build on that, the other thing that's important to really realize is that for certain uh, things, you absolutely want to have decentralization for security and resiliency. If you're trying to create highly resilient solutions that are able to sustain massive damage to it, like 40% of the network being destroyed and needing to reconstruct in real time, then pretty much blockchain is the only technology that gives you that capability. So. I think we need to start looking at our critical infrastructure. And once you identify critical infrastructure, you then need to start making a business case saying, well, before we never had the means to reduce the risk. Now we do. So it's no longer a simple ROI. It's an ROI that has to be uh, inclusive of the cost of damage when it does occur, because it inevitably does. And you mentioned earlier on them. Um they're about Simon about tokens and I think there's the one missing missing uh, gap here which is if you have a network that's trading value of course you need a way in which to incentivize actors in that network to trade in a different way so I think tokens uh, and token economies are actually going to be critical to this beautiful uh, everyone thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider Our pleasure. thank you 
A big thank you to our guests at Consensus, and a big thank you to my regular co-host, uh, Colin G. Platt, or GSAS, as you'll now be known. Uh, Colin, hope you have a great week. And you too. Uh, good luck taking care of your head. <laughs> thank you, sir. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Please spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. Colin, your SAS level was was well over nine thousand. It it just that was that was beautiful.